female founders pitch differently. They often are less ambitious in what they put forward. They're humble in ways that male founders have no need to be. I mean, when I talked to Peter Thiel back in the early days of PayPal, he said, when I pitched PayPal, I wanted to pitch it as the multi-trillion dollar market for currency. And a female founder pitching PayPal would have said, I think that this can be used for paying your friend who paid for dinner. So that's like a $200 million market, right? Like what? No. Yeah. Oh, friends, welcome to December. And let me tell you, I come bearing gifts. The gifts you are about to receive are the gifts of laughter, the gift of storytelling, and the gift of authenticity all delivered via this fantastic conversation with one of the most interesting people I know and definitely one of the most impactful, influential venture capitalists in the Valley, Mr. David Hornick. David is a founding partner at Lobby Capital. For the past 25 years, he has worked closely with technology entrepreneurs to help them build transformative businesses. Prior to founding Lobby Capital, David was a partner at August Capital for 20 years. David invests in a broad range of software companies, including enterprise infrastructure and SaaS businesses like Splunk, Fastly, and GitLab, and fintech companies like Bill.com, WePay, PayNearMe, and consumer services like Evite, Ebates, Top Hatter. David has an eclectic educational background. He got his BA from Stanford in computer music and an MPhil in criminology from Cambridge and a JD from Harvard Law School. No big deal. He teaches courses in entrepreneurship and venture capital at Stanford Business School and Harvard Law School and serves as a VC partner at the Harvard Business School. David started the first venture capital blog, Venture Blog, and had the first venture capital podcast, VentureCast, and is the host of Lobby TV. He has served as the tech curator for the TED conference in Vancouver and was the co-creator and host of TEDx Stanford, which is where I met him because I was the speaker coach for TEDx Stanford. David has received Deloitte's Venture Capitalist of the Year Award and has been nominated by Forbes magazine as a member of its Midas list of top venture capitalists. David lives in Palo Alto with his wife, Pamela, their four children, and their puppy, Teddy. David serves on the board of GLAAD, a leading LGBTQ rights organization, and is a member of the board of the Stanford Alumni Association. Buckle up, my friends, because a conversation with David is always my favorite journey to take. David, let's talk about the thing you and I are most obsessed with, which is storytelling. When you think about the companies that you are constantly coming into contact with, the countless mentoring conversations you're having, what do you think entrepreneurs get wrong about storytelling? The reality is that venture is a very, very simple thing, as is company building. It is very simple. There is a problem. The problem can be solved. I have come up with the solution for that problem. Here is that solution. Isn't it amazing? Lots of people need it. That's it. That's the whole pitch of every pitch in the history of time. And yet, David, what do you get instead? I get, let me tell you about how successful I've been in the past for 20 minutes. The history lesson. I do care about you the people who are building these businesses. Of course I do. In fact, it's the very most important thing. And on occasion, that story is enough. (laughs) Where you're just like, oh my God, 
My partner Howard and I once had a meeting where 40% of the conversation was the founder just telling his life story. And at the end of it, we're like, please take our money. Oh, what are you doing? I don't really care. Wow. <laughs> wow. Was it that compelling, David? Why was it oh so compelling? Gosh, it was unbelievable. It was Wences Caceres. I'll tell you who it was because his story is unbelievable about growing up on a ranch in South America and being so focused and on a dream to create this entrepreneurial endeavor in a place and with the support uh, that one wouldn't anticipate. I mean, it's really like an epic story. His mom, who had made money on the side, gave it to him, which she shouldn't have. Like, it was just an amazing story. And at the end of it, you're like, well, you are incredibly charming, an incredible force of nature. You have solved hard problems, despite the fact that you should not have been able to do those things. Like at the end of it, it was Mm -hmm. like a really great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was epic. It was an epic tale. I tell the tale of David Hornick a lot. And the tale of David Hornick's like, I grew up in an upper middle class house where my dad was a computer scientist (laughs) and I'm a a straight white guy. (laughs) And then I went to Stanford. Ta-da! Wow, dude, you're amazing. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) It's just not that epic. (laughs) But it is interesting. What's funny, one of the things that I always tell people is like the best storytellers are the best story collectors. You're right. That's not a Homeric Odyssean at all fighting all the battles. But David Hornick as an individual has many interesting moments that he tells as stories. Exactly. You know what? It's so funny that you say that because during COVID, during the lockdown, we have this little guest house. I was in the guest house, as was my oldest son who had come home. And my office was this loft. So he heard everything I said. And after a few weeks, he said to me, do you just spend all day talking about yourself? Like, (laughs) oh, my God, how many times am I going to hear the same stories? Well, you know, you get to a certain point in your career and people want to know your backstory. Oh, my God. But those are an important lesson, super important lesson that I learned in fundraising that that everybody should know, which is there is this temptation when you're out telling a story and you're there, I'm there with my partners who yeah. heard this story over and over again to change it up, right? Oh, maybe I'll tell it a different way. Do not do that. Yes. There is a good, compelling, engaging story that has a funny moment and an opportunity and whatever else. And it's the story, like tell that That's story. It. That's it. Yeah, you have this like moment where it's like, oh, I've told it that way. I'll try it a different way. No, there's a reason that comedians spend 4,000 times before they record their TV show. And it's exactly the same way. And if you watch, Tig Notaro has this amazing joke, that epic joke about breast cancer, which I'm like, oh, is that funny? No, it's not funny. She talked about where she tells this joke about her breast trying to kill her. And if you go back to the early days of this joke, if you go back, it's okay. And when you see it in her recorded special of the, you're like, oh my God, it just kills. Yeah. She has not foolishly thought, oh, you people have probably heard this before. Let me tell you some less good story or less good version of the story or a different way or whatever, right? To keep it fresh. You have a cadence and an arc. And when you nail it, 
do it that way. I love that. In fact, I remember somebody asking Stevie Nicks, do you ever get sick of playing landslide? And she's like, of course I get sick of playing landslide, but like, I got to play the people landslide and I got to nail it every time. It's that same thing. And I think it gets to, there's a misconception, especially in tech founder world. Not all of the tech founders in the world are super charismatic, naturally engaging human beings because you can't be good at everything. You can't be an amazing data scientist or whatever, and all these things. And I think they get this false impression that people that do really well with engaging and being charming, that they're changing it every time. And to your point, they're honing and they're honing and they're honing and they're getting the feedback. At some point you're like, okay, I've heard that story. I do hate that. I hate when I repeat stories. I've gotten to the age where I kind of say, you may have heard this. Yeah, before sorry I say, if I've said this. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, feel free to say, yeah. Oh yeah, I've heard that one, David. So what do you do when you're out and about because you're a great communicator and you tell a lot of stories? Do you have systems consciously in your mind for collecting those or for cataloging them? Or you, like, how do you work a story, David? Because I know you're picking them up all the time. My only measure, I'm sure this will shock you, is did it make people laugh? Like that's my <laughs> only measure. Because if it made people laugh, then it's a good story. And if it didn't, then... It's either not a useful story or it's not done yet. <laughs> you know, God, that I is think great. it's funny. Yeah. So. And that's one of your super skills as a communicator is that you are very funny. And you're also just walking around with this kind of joyful vibe about you. When you were early in your career trying to prove yourself, did you feel like you had to dial back any part of you that was this joyful, engaging, funny person? Or did you always know that that was going to get you the best results? Have you had to be in negotiation with that part of yourself in your career? No, I mean, I should have been. (laughs) (laughs) I tell a story, which I will skip the whole story. I'll just give the punchline of I was a brand new attorney. And I was with my first client, who was a very important client, Fortune 500 CEO. And it had been a long day, and we're sitting around discussing what is going to happen next. And the CEO wants to have a meeting and is discussing with my partner across the way, when am I going to meet with this person? I want to meet with this person. And my partner says, well, I'm not sure if you're going to meet with them. And the CEO says, well, who have you been talking to? Have you been talking to so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so? And I turn, having essentially said nothing, and say, no, he's been talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) And then the room goes dead silent. And people are like, oh, man. And I think to myself, it was fun being an attorney for those three weeks. <laughs> I went, But I guess I best find a new career. And luckily, this particular CEO, it was actually exactly what he wanted to hear. And his response was, who said the kid could talk? And thereafter, I was on the inner circle. Interesting. Right? In that instance, it was extraordinarily effective yeah, but it was absolutely perilous. And if you had looked, I was working at a white shoe law firm, this like place you go where you're supposed to be polished or whatever else. And if you yeah. had looked at the terror in the yeah. eyes of the partner I worked for after I said this, what have you done? And I'm like, no, no, it'll be fine. 
<laughs> well, it's very interesting though, because in all of the Silicon Valley dynamics that we've both grown up, because we, I think we got into tech in like the same explosive time, but you come into contact with those leaders or those VCs who they test you based on whether you can pop back off to them. Is that also part of who you've, like, as you honed your voice over the years, you know that directness is also one of your super strengths. Is that a conscious thing you've honed over the years? In the end, my partner, Eric, says he's most surprised that I'm able to get away with saying things that are extremely direct and critical because I do it with a smile and oftentimes with a joke. And the point is the same, but it takes the edge off. I'm sitting at these board meetings. I am not trying to be mean. I have been on boards with people mm -hmm. who are perfectly happy to be mean. They think that's okay, or they don't care. They have no yeah. regard for, does this hurt? I care deeply about that, but I mm -hmm. also have an obligation. I have literally a fiduciary duty to tell the truth. Yeah. And so if there's a way to make the point with a smile, with a, yeah. you know, like, oh my goodness, life is hard and you're making it harder. And that's just, to my mind, way more effective. And that. that's been my goal. I have to say, like, humor is an unbelievably valuable tool. I realized this very early on because I was in these pitches where I didn't have any reason to know what they were pitching. And so you have to establish credibility. Part of credibility is knowing the language and then being able to relate to what they're talking about. And what I discovered was the you instantly had credibility if you could make a joke about the thing they were talking about. If you could Ooh. make a quantum computing joke when you're being pitched on quantum, if you could make a joke, a networking joke when you're talking about networking, they were like, oh, you clearly understand. You, you get it. Oh, you were in network engineering. It's like, no, but I can make a good joke. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I've never actually thought about humor in that way as a way of credibility, of signaling that you belong in the tribe, which is really what that is. A absolutely. But by demonstrating, because humor is a challenge, right? Humor is just about expectation setting, break the expectation. Oh, that's funny. Right. Mm -hmm. And so expectation setting is I understand something core to what you're telling me. Yeah. And then, oh, haha, ha, this thing. Here's mm -hmm. a quantum computing joke that mm -hmm. talks about being of shared mind. But, yeah. Oh, it's a joint qubit joke. Okay, yeah. you must understand quantum computing. Like, okay, that's a very nerdy joke. But to nerds, it's like, oh, man, that's amazing. But it gets you credibility and puts everybody at ease because I always talk about energetic Wi-Fi. Like some people are at five bars and everybody wants to get on that network. And some right. people walk in and they're like at barely one and they wonder why they're not engendering enthusiasm from the room. It's like, well, you got to walk in with a you gotta break it. You, you got to bring it. it. I ran the Speakers Bureau when I was in college. Brought all sorts of amazing people to campus. And one of those people was the founder of Dungeons and Dragons, a guy named Gary Gygax, who I had dinner with. Had this, And I ran the Speakers Bureau with a professor named Canel Jackson, who was the head of the African-American Studies Department, was this incredibly wonderful human. And we had a huge crowd, as you might imagine, to come hear Gary Gygax speak. And I introduced him. Okay, I got up there. And my introduction was to describe my D&D &D character. Oh, it had it's like unimaginable characteristics, amazing. like 48 strength and blah, blah, like no character in the history of time. And every time I gave another characteristic, the crowd went wild, like, oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, this is not a thing. 
And in the end, I said, I bring to you the holy high lord of Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax. And the place erupts, goes crazy oh and cheers as it gets up on stage. And I step off stage and Professor Jackson looks at me and goes, I did not understand a thing you said, but it clearly worked. <laughs> Amen. Because <laughs> you were sprechenzi deutsching. You were speaking yeah, the language right. of d and if that's oh, what, and luckily I spoke to you, so that was easy. That's amazing. And just for those listening for whom humor doesn't come easily, if it's in you, you got to bring it forward, but you can't always manufacture it. So that's a whole other category. But for the people yeah, for right. whom humor comes naturally, we shouldn't be dialing it back. We should be using it skillfully. Yeah. But one of the things I appreciate about you so much, David, is you look at things in the way you look at them and you articulate them in a way that's warm and engaging and direct and real and honest, but also fun and funny. And I feel like it allows you to play that insider outsider role at the same time. And one of the things that I love that you did was the lobby conference. You and I share the same feeling about most conferences, which is like, shoot me freaking now. They're not engineered for engagement and breakthroughs and like, just like quantum connection making. They're just not. And so what yeah. do you do? You create the unconference. So talk about that for just a second, like how you had the idea and brought it to fruition. I've been going to all these conferences. And at the end of the day, the conference piece of the conference was the least compelling thing about it. You'd go in and you hear a bunch of speakers and they had been, this group of speakers had been amassed six months earlier. I just had a lobby conference, which was the week after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Can you imagine going to a conference that had been planned six months ago where you sat in a room the week after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and no one discussed finance at all? That's crazy to me. You want things of the moment. Yeah. You also want what's important to the individual. And to me, the most valuable thing of these conferences at the end of the day is human connection. And frankly, that's all I care about in anything. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. matters in everything you do and storytelling and in life and business and in giving back to the planet. It's all about human connection. So I Amen. said, like, these conferences are not in any way designed to optimize for human connection. They're designed for something weird. And it turns out, I now understand what they were designed for. Oh, please They're tell designed me. for sales. They're designed to get people to come to them. But the ridiculous part is by selling something nobody wants. Right? so true. <laughs> so it's this weird thing where you're actually selling a second order effect. You're saying, I have Mark Benioff speaking. So you should absolutely come because don't you want to hear Mark Benioff? Now, it's not that Mark Benioff isn't entertaining. And actually, he's probably one of the better speakers because he kind of doesn't care what anyone thinks and he actually tells the truth. Agreed. But the real reason you're going isn't because Mark Benioff's there. You're going because you think that other amazing people will want to hear Mark Benioff and show up. And so you get to speak with them. And oh, yeah, Mark Benioff was like the bait. Totally. So these conferences are designed for the bait. Yeah. Not for the engagement, not for the payload. And that struck me as insane. And so finally, I just said, what if you start a conference that is just about the payload, right? That mm -hmm. is just about building relationships and having conversations. And if you were to do that, mm -hmm. if you were to say like, okay, here's an amazing group of people and we're going to do things that get them to let down their defenses, that get them to speak honestly and openly, come together and talk mm -hmm. about 
their lives and the things that are important to them, you will leave with dramatically deeper relationships, which will drive not only your happiness, but also drive your business. This is a business conference. People say like, oh, I didn't expense it. No, of course you should expense it. More incredible business things have come out of this conference. I just got an email. I just opened up registration to my lobby enterprise conference, right? Mm -hmm. This is the B2B conference. Yeah. And I got an email back saying, David, so excited. Last year was my first time coming. It was the most fun, best conference I've ever been to. And I left with an angel check. Like holy dream, done, right? done. But let me ask you, David, because everybody would agree with everything you're saying. There's nothing you've said about how it should be designed that anybody would disagree with. But the magic is how do you think about what systems or what framework do you think about to foster that kind of authentic conversation? Is yeah. it the icebreakers? Is it the way you talk to people? Like, what are the triggers? Yeah in the subconscious minds of that audience of those lobby conferences that gets the results that you're talking about? Because there's magic there. It's amazing. I talk to all sorts of people and I give them all the answers, right? Yeah. And people are like, why would you give the answers? But I think there are four things I did. Mm-hmm. Here they are. Number one, I hate getting to a conference and getting a list of people and it says, here's who's coming. Who are these people? I just got here. Who are these people? Yeah. What does Bronwyn look like? Yeah. Okay, what does that mean that you're part of Bronwyn Communications? Like, what is that? So when you register for the lobby, I have these themes because they entertain me. <laughs> so every conference has a theme. You know, there was back to high school. There was a sports-themed conference. There was a travel conference, right? So before the conference... When you register, I ask you some information about yourself. I have you upload a picture. I use it in some interesting way. The week before you get to the conference, you get this thing and you get to see who's coming. Yeah. But it's not a bunch of titles. It's, look, here's David with his four kids smiling. David talking about where'd you grow up? I grew up in Hollis, New Hampshire, and I was in pep band or what? Like those things where you're like, because I recently had this. I can't even remember what the prompt is, but it was like a childhood thing. Yeah. There were four different attendees who'd been childhood magicians. And I was like, so great. Of course there were. But if you're one of those four childhood magicians, you're going to find the other three. You've got to go find those people. And say like, what was your trip? You know, yeah. Oh my God, that is right. so good. So I try and create connection. If you were the number one school, when I did kind of back to high school, the number one high school that attendees of the lobby went to, any guesses? Number one high school that attendees of the lobby went to. Palo Alto High School. One would be tempted to say Palo Alto. One might be tempted to say Andover or Exeter. Great Neck High School in Long Island. It turned out, that there were a number of people who had grown up in Great Neck. And that was surprising. It was like, oh, Great Neck, that's interesting. So what you're saying, though, is you're connecting with their humanity, not their freaking CVs. Absolutely. Because I talk to people, obviously, in my line of business, and I have yet to meet someone who's like, you know what I love? I love walking in a room where I don't know anyone and making small talk. No one's ever said that to me. I can't wait to figure out anything I have in common with this person or I have nothing in common and then how can I step away without them being offended? That sounds awesome. 
It I sounds horrendatrons, right? And so what you're doing is you're creating that human connection beforehand and reminding us that we're all human beings. And humans are categorically always without exception, amazing if you just know where to look, right? So then you do that at the pre, but are there any techniques? That's step one. Yeah. Step Step two is there is a game that everyone plays the first half of the first full day of the conference. It is a very complicated and amazing puzzle race that is created by a group called Shinteki, who I have worked with now for almost 20 years. They create this complicated, fun, engaging thing that everybody goes through in teams of people that does something incredibly magical. It A is completely collaborative and people are engaged, whatever. B, it is hard in interesting ways and no one person knows all the answers. Therefore, no one can pretend they're a genius. No one, (laughs) everybody leaves the game thinking two things. One, wow, these people are really smart who are surrounding me. They knew things I didn't know. And huh, maybe I don't know everything. That's amazing. That's unimaginably valuable, right? So by the time you get to it, Then three, the core of this conference is an unconference. And, you know, hat tip to Tim O'Reilly, who did Foo Camp back in the day, where it was you literally showed up and you wrote on a board, this is what I want to talk about. So mine is a slightly more dictatorial version of of that. The week before the event, I say, what do you want to talk about? Send me a bunch of topics. And then I am the benevolent dictator of the lobby. And I say... From one to two, here are the 10 things you can talk about. You can talk about the future of democracy. You can talk about CEO coaches. You can talk about Kubernetes. You can talk about your favorite comedian. You can talk about building culture in a distributed world. You can, right? So there's 10 things. 250 people. I have 250 beanbag chairs in a warehouse in Hawaii. They're on the lawn under big tents with the big numbers one through 10. And you look at this list and you say, huh, I'd love to talk about Kubernetes. Okay, the 10 of you who are there talking about Kubernetes, that's what they all chose. The 10 of you who chose the future of democracy, they chose democracy over Kubernetes. Guess what's important to them? And you have this hour-long conversation where you meet and discuss. It's not a lecture. It's literally a conversation about what people think. And by the way, they're all off the record absolutely off the record. So anything you say can be truthful. So when people talk about CEO coaches, they talk about the good and the bad of their experiences. I had a great session called M&A deals that sucked. And it was some of the folks in the crowd were the heads of M&A from Google and Yahoo and like the biggest companies talking about the bad deals they'd done. And others were people who had sold companies and why it had gone poorly, right? What an unbelievably valuable conversation they have if you're thinking about selling your company. So, okay, so that's number three. So we have crazy information beforehand so you know who the people are. You have a game that lets down your defenses. You have this moment where it's off the record and you have a set of conversations. And then the last thing was just a fluke, but it turns out that it kind of sets the tone, which is that every lobby starts with me appearing on stage in some completely insane costume. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, David! (laughs) That's how it starts. And it started because the very first year of the lobby, 
I said, oh my God, I've convinced 150 people Hmm. to come to Hawaii to a conference that has never existed where I didn't tell them what was happening. I just said, here are this amazing group of people I've invited. If you come, it'll be great, I promise. And 150 people showed up and I realized that I had created Fantasy Island. <laughs> that I was like, you know. Oh my God. And as a gentleman who is five foot four, it was very clear to me that I was Hervé Velichez <laughs> and that if we were going to have people show up on Fantasy Island, that I needed to greet them with welcome to Fantasy Island. So I convinced- That is yeah. amazing. So I convinced my tallest friend who was coming to the lobby to join me, we've got white tuxedos. I came in on a golf cart, drove up. I got <laughs> on stage and I said, "Welcome to Fantasy Island." And the pe- place people died. People died because they were like, "Are you kidding me?" Like, first of all, that's hilarious. Yeah, I feel like that really is. Like, what are we doing here? Secondly, it was self-deprecating. It's yeah. like, of course, I'm a small person. I'm not confused by that, <laughs> you know, and. Please don't take yourself too seriously here. This thing is not about that, right? And so that was just me being ridiculous. And it became clear to me, oh, that's a thing. Like, if you're new to this conference, that should be the first thing you encounter. And the year after COVID, when we finally had the thing, I came rolling down the hill in one of those giant balls that looked that those like hamster things, a big hamster wheel, but it looks like a giant COVID ball screaming, let me out, you know, and I emerged from this thing in a giant heart and like, welcome back. All I want to do is hug you. David, that is everybody felt it. Everybody was like, oh my God, this is what we've been waiting for. Like to come back. Yeah. Back and to embrace it. But what I love about the way you roll and the way that conference is now, of course, literally, literally roll lobby yeah. conference is now lobby capital. It's just keeps going and, and getting better and better is that people just I think they just want to separate business from soul. And it's like, no, like all the best stuff is when you bring the two together and full humanity is able to talk about business. I've been working with a guy named Renee Lassert for 23 years. Renee pitched. 97 other VCs before I gave him a term sheet. And I thought Renee was amazing. It was my first investment. He and I became very good friends. He had a company called PayCycle. It was sold to Intuit. It did well. Then he formed a new company called Bill.com, which I funded again as it got started. And it's now a $10 billion public company. And Renee and I have been on this journey for 23 years and we were texting this morning. When we first started working together, we walked the dish every month. So the dish, for those who don't know, yeah. out in the backside of Stanford is this the foothills. And there's a big dish antenna, which is why it's called the dish. And it's kind of hour and a half long loop that you can walk. Yeah. And so Renee and I would get together and have a walking meeting every month, walk the dish. And half of it was spent on his business and half of it was spent on our family. We started with whichever was more pressing. Wow. And we watched as, you know, I funded Brene before he got married. I had kids, then he had kids. He watched my kids apply to college and his kids apply to college. And business is personal. His son came out. I had a gay son. We had a set of conversations. I was on the board of GLAAD. And I said, well, your son should come. I have a table at this big GLAAD award while your son's in college at Brown. Does he want to bring some friends to the GLAAD Awards and brought 
you know, seven amazing young people to the GLAD Awards. Like, business is personal. It's important. And, you know, and of course, that doesn't mean I always tell Renee that I think he's a genius. It's yeah, like Renee, yeah. Renee gets the truth from me all the time. And he's sort of like, oh, God. He's like, why is he always right? You know, I, or, you know, he's like, why are you always here? <laughs> you know, that's amazing. That's amazing. And speaking of business being personal or things that are personal, you did a lobby conference specifically for female founders which I was supposed to be at to help with, but I got freaking got COVID. So you set out to create that conference because of how abysmal the statistics are around women getting venture capital funding. What did you learn from that experience of hosting those women and create and co-host? There were multiple yeah. women hosting. Yeah, yeah. What did you learn from that event? Well, I should say the advent of the event was there's an incredible founder named Selena Tabakawala. And oh, Selena... Yeah. I was Selena's attorney 25 years ago when she graduated from college. While at Stanford, she and her co-founder, Al Lieb, start created Evite. They said, oh, we should have this digital invitation thing. We created Evite. They invented a thing My and God. I became their attorney. And so I was very close with Selena forever. And when we started Lobby Capital, as you said, I was at August Capital from yeah. August 3 through August 7. You know, so five funds, it was an amazing time. And when we went to raise our new fund, we said, should we call it August 8 or something else? And I said to my partner, Eric, let's call it lobby capital. Let's lean into the things that we care about, people and engagement. And so we created lobby capital one, the first lobby fund. And we said, we should have venture partners who are people we adore and trust who are brilliant. And Selena was at the top of the list. So wow. Selena joined us as a venture partner. And as a result, she started coming to all these pitches, seeing all these pitches, and she's been mentoring female founders forever. She's a hugely important trusted source for female founders. So people come to Selena and say, can you help me with this? She helps them with their pitches. And she was then introducing to us to help them, to give them feedback on their pitches. And we'd give them feedback and Selena would say, yeah, that's right. And so finally, Selena said to me, this is really challenging. And some of it is that male VCs are sexist and that's a real problem. But some of it is that female founders pitch differently often. They often are less ambitious in what they put forward. They're humble in ways that male founders have no need to be. When we talk about what is the scale of your market, female founders often go with a very realistic market as opposed to a big picture market. I mean, when I talked to yeah. Peter Thiel back in the early days of PayPal, he said, when I pitched PayPal, I wanted to pitch it as the multi-trillion dollar market for currency. That is a male founders. Like my market That's is so all money in the world. Everywhere. And a female founder pitching PayPal would have said, I think that this can in the early days be used for paying your friend who paid for dinner. So that's like a $200 million market. What? No. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. it'd be used for everything as we know it is. So anyway, yeah. so Selena, I had this conversation and she said, we should do something about this. You know, let's have an event that allows female founders to get the feedback they need to encourage them to pitch to the fullest of their capacity. To take big swings. And, yeah. And to give them an insider view, because she's like, now I know what VCs say when you get off the phone. 
And so Selena, Leah Sullivan, who started TaskRabbit, joined us. Martina Lachenko, who's this incredible force. I was actually Martina's RA when she was an 18-year-old at Stanford. No. And she was a force the day she got there, and she still is, and she's at Costa Noa. And Allie Rosenthal, who's, who was a student of mine, I taught at the GSB, who was a force at the GSB, was the first biz dev person at Facebook, and now has her own venture fund. I, these incredible people came together and we started having conversation. What would it look like and how can we do it? And within six months, we had an event. And the event was 55. It was supposed to be 50. We turned away 150 founders, had 55 amazing female founders and 45 VCs come together and have the VCs give unadulterated feedback to the founders while giving them resources. You were going to be one of those resources to learn about storytelling, to learn about uh, economics and how to think about their finances, et cetera. It was a fantastic day. And two things are interesting. One, I think that people got a lot out of understanding this process and what the big picture goals were. One of the things we did that we do in my class called Startup Garage at the GSB mm -hmm. is this elevator pitch moment where every person practices their elevator pitch and then everyone around says, oh, here's what I heard you say. And I don't mm -hmm. think, you know, and then you do it again. We did this and everybody got a huge amount of it. So people got really good feedback, got really good help. You know what they cared about the most? What? Being with 54 other female founders. In the end, people still only care about the community. They said a day wasn't enough. I wish it was a day and a half. And if you do it again, think about that. So I'm doing it again in January for underrepresented founders. So we'll have the Lobby Elevate Underrepresented Founders Summit. Amazing. Which will be a similar experience. Well, I owe you one, David. So sign me up to support in, whatever they need. January. I mean, I think that is so powerful. And this is the other thing that I find so wonderful about watching you in the world is that you're a busy, busy guy and you didn't have to do any of this stuff. You could have just <laughs> done your thing but you keep giving back. And I think it's beautiful karma you're making in the world. And I think it's only going to be good in the long run, but I just am really grateful for people like you because not everybody's you out there in the venture capital community. No, that's probably true. And I, like, <laughs> I try and work with those. I mean, you know, it's a very sad thing if your differentiation is being like, oh, you're actually a decent human. Like that, <laughs> that seems like and I don't mean to throw the entire venture industry under the bus. Like. And I don't think anybody's cruel or mean. I just think you do a great job of it. So I'm going to let you go, David, because Can I, I tell know you, you one more one story. On. I want to tell you one more tell story. Me all the stories, all of them. As I've been sitting here looking at myself in this thing, and I'm like, you know, you see me pushing my hair back, not because I'm like one of those vain pushing hair back guys, but because this look is making me crazy. So <laughs> I'll start with an earlier story, which is unbelievable. When I was in law school, I was the musical director of the Law School Drama Society. And we were putting on the show Pippin, and I was playing King Charlemagne in Pippin. And Amazing. so I grew this ridiculous beard. And the thing I didn't think about was that we were going to then go interview for summer jobs, and I would have this beard. <laughs> so, like, okay. Oh my God, this leads to another even more fun story. So anyway, I go into interview with the firm that I ended up working at that I told you earlier, I almost lost the job at yeah. after two weeks. I'm meeting with the managing partner of this firm, Cravath, Swain & Moore. Stuffy, important firm. I'm wearing a suit, whatever. 
the partner says, oh, blah, 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 blah. He quickly looks through my resume. We have a conversation. And then he says, David, is this has been great. I appreciate it. I look forward to having you come to New York, which is all you're trying to do. Like game over. This was a great lesson in don't sell past the close. He said, I look forward to having you in New York. It's great. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Do you have anything, any last things you'd like to tell me? Now, I should have said, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm excited to visit New York. I did not say that. I said, that's been great. Thank you so much. I just want to apologize for this beard. <laughs> oh my God. Said, I'm in the musical Pippin. I'm playing King Charlemagne. I have this beard and I'm very sorry. And he says, I have a beard. Jesus, God. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I was like, oh, my God, you, I can't believe it. All right. Second really quick story. I'm a summer associate at a law firm and I'm talking with the summer partner, the hiring partner. And I was complaining about the fact that we had to wear suits. I said, suits are stupid. Why are we wearing suits? And she says to me, David, you can wear your pajamas to work. I say, you should not say that to me. That is not a thing you should say to me. She said, David, if you wear your pajamas to work, I'll pour your coffee. I say, oh, that was not good. Oh, no. Oh, so anyway, the next morning, I wear my pajamas to work. And there's a training session. So all of the summer people come together and I'm in pajamas. And people are whispering and looking and like, what the heck is going on? But at this point, then I come to a realization which is that this training session is led by other partners from the firm who had not had this conversation with me. Oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so there are all these partners. Here's a all these law students who are trying to get a job at the firm for the summer and I am in pajamas and they're like, what is going on? And unfortunately, the woman who had said to me, wear your pajamas, I'll pour your coffee, was not there. So oh, she didn't shit. even say, like, whatever. It was just an amazing, it was an amazing. Wait, but wait, what ended up happening? Did you All like? Right. Yeah, so what ended up happening is people just pretended it wasn't a thing. We all sat down. They started the training session because it was just too weird. No one was like, there was some giggling. And some some of the summer people had heard the story because I was telling it. Anyway, and then this woman, Kathy, shows up midway through. I see her come in the door. No comment made. And all of a sudden I see a hand reach over my shoulder. It puts down a cup and then it pours cup, a cup. Oh, of stop it. Just in the middle of the thing. No one says a word. Just Kathy quietly pours my coffee. OK, so that's the first part. So I'm like, OK, that's she, amazing. That was awesome. She did good. I got she... this huge smile on my face like, oh, my God. Now, the thing ends. We all go to our offices. I wasn't a complete crazy person. I had brought a suit. I change into my suit for the rest of the day. It's the afternoon. So this is like mere hours after this thing. And I get in the elevator and the managing partner of the firm steps in the elevator. And the partner I'm with says, oh, so-and-so, have you met our summer associate, David Hornick? He shakes my hand and he says, oh, you're the young man who wore his pajamas to work. Oh, Jesus, God in heaven. I said, yes, sir, that was me. And he said, well, good for you. Someone has to pull Kathy's chain. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is insane. And I, 
And then, and basically that was the day I got the offer to stay at that level. You lean into authentic self and you're smart as hell. Like they probably freaking loved it. All right. So now the story I was going to tell you about this look, which is last night we had a fundraiser for a museum that I helped uh, get started called the ICA San Francisco, the Institute of Contemporary Art in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it was the first year anniversary of the ICA. It's been an amazing year. And from the beginning, Ali Gass, who runs the museum, said, it's going to be a different museum and we're going to do things differently. And so we had our gala, but the gala was a homecoming dance. So everybody dressed in high school cheerleader outfits and whatever. And I was the host of the evening and I was the school principal. So ordinarily I have a goatee, but I shaved it to have the worst mustache you've ever seen. Like just this incredible mustache that was eating my face. And I hadn't cut my hair because I wanted to be able to like do a comb over. Yeah, like a Chris Farley moment. Yeah, like, you know, so I had the mustache and and it was so fun and it was a great evening. It was fantastic. And then this morning, my wife's like, now shave that mustache immediately. Where you've committed. Which is like not much better. Well, I think you look great. I mean, I think you look great. And that's another example, David, of like reimagining an experience like I hate fundraising galas because I hate small talk. I don't know who I'm going to get. It's just my nightmare. But that is another example of being like, what would humans want to do? Yeah, you would have loved it. We served little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We had just freaking best. That's the best. Okay, David, anything else you want to say? And I just can't tell you how grateful I am. If you could talk straight into the ears of a founder or somebody that's trying to raise money in this environment and they just need to hear a word of encouragement from you, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, entrepreneurs are the most amazing humans alive. They have this idea that they think can change the planet in some way, some little way, some big way, it doesn't matter. And they say, instead of just thinking about it, I'm actually gonna go do it. That's astonishing. And they do it against all odds and in the face of a lot of naysayers and all that. And so I think you just have to say, like, if you're a believer in what you're building and you think it will truly make a difference in the planet, then you just have to go out and present that way. Loud and proud. Like I saw a problem. I am a problem solver and I have the solution and the solution is going to be amazing. That's what you should do. And if people tell you, it's not a problem or it's not a good solution or it's not amazing. Move on and and go to the next one. I mean, it took Renee, how many VCs yeah. to say no? 97, did you say? Got to nine, I'm the 98. Unbelievable. Well, I can't think of a better way to end it. And thank you so, so much, David. Just such a pleasure to talk to you. Always fun. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation, you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high-voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, 
I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics and you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.